1: Hello, you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast covering the world of technology and science. I'm Jason Palmer, an editor of The Economist's daily briefing app, Espresso. Coming up on this week's show, soon electric vehicles could be charged effectively through thin air or from the road.
2: Managing to charge a vehicle while it's moving, that would, in theory, allow a vehicle to be driven forever without stopping.
1: Drones get beefed up for the battlefield. If you don't
2: have a pilot, how do you make sure that it
0: senses and avoids obstacles that it doesn't run into other helicopters or drones, uh, and that it's capable of dealing with emergency situations.
1: And an unexpected visitor arrives in our solar system. It's the first time that we've spotted anything in
3: our solar system that originated from outside it.
1: First up, drivers of electric cars may be making the world a little less polluted, but the cables from charging points are adding a little clutter to city streets. More crucially though, there's always the worry that there won't be one of those charging points nearby. So engineers have been thinking about refueling electric vehicles through thin air. And thanks to a process called electrical induction, it seems that's possible. Technology writer Ben Sutherland is here to explain more. Ben, uh, on the surface of it, it seems simple. You've got a coil of copper wire in the ground run a current through it, that induces a similar current in in a conductor, you know, sort of nestled in the car somewhere. But but wireless charging is not, uh, you don't get them kind of rolling off the factory line this way. How, how is this actually done in an, in an aftermarket way?
2: Yes, well, f- you, you essentially have to uh, purchase the kit. There are a number of, of companies that are uh, designing and starting to manufacture these kits. For the moment, there's only one company that's actually selling them. It's a Virginia firm called Evatran, but uh, these companies, including Evatran, are are beginning to sell and license the technology to car makers, a number of which are expected to be offering this as a factory option within, within a year or so. They include Audi, BMW, Daimler, Ford, Jaguar, Mercedes-Benz, and Volvo. The, the expected cost is probably going to be about a couple thousand dollars. So what what about measures of
1: efficiency, right? The only reason we get an electric car in the first place is because it, you know, sort of helps with environmental concerns and so on. Is is it efficient yet to do, to do charging this way?
2: Uh yes it is actually. What what the experts say, including the manufacturers of the equipment, is that about 11% of the power is lost before the energy is picked up by the pickup coil on the bottom of the vehicle and and makes it into that battery. But that's about the same amount that's lost if uh, the charging is done through a cord. And one of the reasons for this is if you don't have the air gap, a transformer is used in the, in the cabling to prevent the danger of surges from blowing out the wiring in your home or causing problems with the city grid if you're topping up your battery over say a plate that drivers would rent from say a utility company. That also increases the resistance and gives you a roughly 11% loss. So essentially you're, you're going to lose about that much electricity no matter which way you charge your battery.
1: And so how do you see the, this, this developing? At the moment, it's just kind of uh, buy them and, and add on to your car for, for home use. How do you see this becoming more widespread?
2: Well, the holy grail that the technologists are working on is managing to charge a vehicle while it's moving. That would, in theory, allow a vehicle to be driven forever without stopping if a big enough percentage of the track is actually inlaid with coil that can uh, pass a charge through to the vehicle. Now in practice this uh, this does work by having a sequence of coils in the pavement in the street with some sort of magnetic system to know exactly where the car is and, and therefore when to switch on which part of the track. Uh, you can deliver a charge to a moving car. That is obviously going to cost a fair amount of money to, to put into the roads but there are a number of companies working on ways to try and get the cost of such a system down. One of them is an Israeli startup based outside of Tel Aviv called Elect Road. With money from Israel's Ministry of Transport in Tel Aviv, they have actually begun converting a short stretch of road in Tel Aviv with this system. And the city will be using it to charge electric buses as they move along their route.
1: Let's take a little aside then to satisfy my curiosity. You say this is going to be costly, it's easy to imagine that it is, and we get kind of closer and closer to what, you know, what you already see with electric buses that have the overhead lines, right, or, you know, essentially bumper cars, but but writ large. Why not just do that?
2: Uh, well, the feeling is that uh, the catenary system is ugly. It requires uh, expensive equipment on these buses that prevents them from going anywhere where you don't have a catenary, overhead catenary system. If you have the charging infrastructure in the street, you can essentially charge any electric vehicle that merely has the pickup coil on its underside. Of course, you don't need to have that infrastructure along every stretch of that road. Estimates vary between, say, having about 10 to 20% of the road equipped would be enough for a vehicle to continue along that road and never, ever stop for charging. Right.
1: Ben, electrifying stuff. Thank you very much for your time. Next up, drones are steadily buzzing their way into our lives. Soon, we are told, we should see the familiar quadcopter-style machines even delivering pizzas. But using these kinds of drones on the battlefield to deliver supplies and pick up injured soldiers, for example, is something of a different story. Here to tell us how battle-ready versions are being developed is science writer David Hambling. Hiya, David. Hello. Hi there. I guess my first question is, this is kind of being framed as a question about drones, but it sounds to me more like, uh, it's more like an an equivalent of of autonomous cars. This is sort of uh, helicopters meets autonomous cars more than it's a drones question, isn't it?
0: Uh, Yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, an an autonomous helicopter is a sort of a drone, but there's a feeling in the industry that in order to get a Uh, an unmanned flying craft that can carry people all you need to do is basically scale up one of these consumer drones that everyone is flying these days Uh, However, there turns out to be a lot more to it than that, particularly when you start looking at the safety aspects.
1: Well, what more is there? I mean, these things are already reasonable size. They they can already, you know, bring me, I don't know, things from Amazon, I'm being told. Why isn't it just sort of scaling things up a bit?
0: Uh, Well, it's certainly possible to scale it up. And the Chinese recently unveiled one, which is capable of uh, carrying payloads of of, uh, over a ton. If you put enough rotors on it, you can carry uh, a much bigger payload. And if you make the rotors bigger, in theory, you can scale it up to pretty much side. The issue, however, is that while they might get there 99% of the time, and that might be certainly enough for delivering pizzas or home electronics, it's not really enough when you're delivering passengers.
1: So it's a, it's a matter of starting from something rather more tried and tested in the form of a helicopter rather than building up a thing that we don't know quite so well? Is it as simple as that?
0: Exactly. So the, the Sikorsky, who are now a, a branch of Lockheed Martin, Uh, have been in the helicopter industry for many years, and obviously they have a a huge amount of experience with helicopter safety. And from their point of view, it's not so much a matter of inventing a new flying machine as making sure that you can have unmanned operation of an existing flying machine and make that so that's completely safe. So they've already got the flight safety systems in terms of making sure that the engine and the electronics are all fail-safe, and so that if the rotors stop working, it can glide down safely. But then there's the question of, if you don't have a pilot, how do you make sure that it senses and avoids obstacles, that it doesn't run into other helicopters, or drones uh, and that it's capable of dealing with emergency situations now those are the sort of things that small consumer drones uh, just don't even consider
1: I guess that's the part that kind of uh, is the is the collision Pardon the phrasing with autonomous cars is the sort of this strong dependence on on sensors and presumably there will be some machine vision and and so on
0: yes I mean you're looking at very much the same sort of thing that they're doing with driverless cars only on a much bigger scale uh, For example, the driverless cars, particularly the the Waymo developed by Alphabet, the the Google parent company, is very much based on LiDAR, this uh, light sensing system that is used to build up a a three-dimensional picture of the world. Now, the challenge with the driverless car is making that sensor cheap enough, because the the original ones cost about $70,000 each, which is more than the rest of the car. Uh, However, on a helicopter, which costs many millions of dollars, the price isn't the important thing. The important thing is giving it the range and capability. So while people like Google are working on smaller, cheaper LiDAR, people like Sikorsky are working on bigger, more sophisticated ones that can work in an environment where you're traveling at 150 miles an hour and where you have to see things coming from all directions at once rather than just looking down a straight, narrow road.
1: Usual story of the military getting the best version of the tech first, I suppose.
0: Well, there's been an interesting mix of that, particularly in in, in drones recently, because in terms of small drones, the, the military are actually falling behind because people like DJI actually have a bigger R&D budget for developing small devices than they do. But uh in fields like this the, the military are rather way out ahead because nobody else is putting the money into it. So they will almost certainly be the first ones to get large-scale, sophisticated, autonomous helicopters capable of flying in obstacle-rich terrain rather than just firing, flying safely point to point.
1: I'm trying to sort of imagine in my head how this is coming together. Is this retrofitting existing helicopters, or is this building up a, a, a brand new device from the ground up?
0: Yeah. So, so what Sikorsky are doing, they're, they're taking a Black Hawk helicopter, which is like the uh, standard US military transport helicopter. They've got thousands of them, and they're actually taking a very old version of it, and they're fitting it with what they call matrix technology and this involves uh, a whole load of sensors including the lidar a small supercomputer to do the processing, and a load of servo-driven controls which can actually take over moving the uh, the picture of the rotor blades and the other control surfaces to, to fly the thing without actually having anyone in the cockpit.
1: Um, and the uh, last question, almost inevitably in stories about emerging technology of this sort, when are, when are these things going to be hitting the battlefield as it were? Uh,
0: difficult to tell exactly when it's going to be hitting the battlefield. It will be flying for the first time next year. The path ahead of that, really, it's a matter of how rapidly people's confidence builds up in it, uh, because it could be fielded very rapidly. But I imagine the people who certify these things and also the people who are going to be flown in them are going to want to see many, many thousands of hours of successful, safe flying before anyone is actually going to want to be carried by one.
1: Here again, uh, a story very similar to to that of autonomous cars. So uh, both vehicles to watch, I suppose. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time, David. Thank you very much. And finally, an unexpected visitor graced the space of our solar system recently. On October 19th, an object of unidentified origin was spotted speeding into our little corner of the universe before it slingshotted around the sun and zoomed along towards the exit. I'm joined by science correspondent Anunno Bhattacharya who's been writing about this mysterious guest. Hi Anunno. Hi Jason. So tell me First of all, where, where where is this thing now?
3: It is uh, zipping away from us at a fair clip at about 45 kilometers per second.
1: Goodness, um, but it came in at a fairly strong clip as well.
3: Yeah, at about 25 and a half kilometers per second.
1: I mean, it sounds fast, but, you know, how fast is your average asteroid, for example? It's it's a fast thing.
3: It's This is, this is fast, and that, in fact, was the indication to astronomers that it was coming from outside of our solar system. Um, you would normally expect, if it was a comet or a... Asteroid from within our solar system that it would have a sort of closed orbit around the sun, but this is going way too fast for that, and they knew when they spotted it that it would uh, slingshot around the sun and uh, and exit our solar system.
1: so is this thing not just a comet?
3: Well, uh, they expected it to be a comet, then they look more closely at it, and uh, through the telescope it's not fuzzy, which would indicate that it had a tail as comets are icy, they get closer to the sun the ice tends to sublimate off and, uh, you know, you get gas and dust and it produces a tail. This thing has no tail, so it's a rock. They've classified it as an asteroid. Now, they were expecting it to be a comet, a comet from, you know, another solar system, because uh, comets tend to fly around towards the outer periphery of solar systems, so they're rather easy to dislodge from those orbits. Um, However, this one is is not a comet, and they could be, lots of reasons for that. One is that in the potentially millions or billions of years that it's been traveling through space, before it got to us, uh, the reactive chemicals on its surface, just uh, because of cosmic rays, became more stable. And so now they don't uh, off. or it could have just started life as a piece of rock.
1: Too too fast to, to be to to basically sort of stay in a stable orbit. Yeah. And so that makes it a unique visitor.
3: It is. It's the first time that we've spotted anything in our solar system that originated from outside it, probably from another solar system.
1: Sounds cool. What, what, can, what can we learn from it, though?
3: There are a few puzzles about all of this. Essentially, these things are left over from when the planet's formed. Uh, it's the sort of spare rock that's left over, and occasionally they get nudged out of their orbits around their particular star, and then they you know, cruise through space. And uh, according to the models of, of how solar systems form, we should be seeing about one a year. So why we haven't seen any up until now, when we've probably been looking for a few decades, uh, is a bit of a mystery. It could be that our models of how solar systems form uh, are not entirely accurate.
1: And so this one goes towards validating those models, or this one goes towards reminding us that the models we have aren't very good?
3: <laughs> uh, well, that seems a trifle harsh. Uh, they may need some refinement. I, I, I think uh, what astronomers are wondering is, why haven't we spotted one before? Is it that they are rarer than we thought, based on these models? Or is it, in fact, that you know we haven't been looking in the right places, and now that we've seen one, know what we're looking for, are we going to suddenly, over the next few years, see a spate of them? Uh, which is very possible. Ananobaracharya,
1: thank you very much. That's it for this week's Babbage. Don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes or through your chosen podcast app. And head to our website to read more about all these stories or pick up a copy of this week's paper. Until next time, in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.